Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 492nd episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented, prolific, and trailblazing storytellers and hitmakers in the history of television. Through her production company, Shondaland, she was at ABC the creator, head writer, and executive producer of Grey's Anatomy, which went on the air in 2005 and is still running, Private Practice, which ran from 2007 through 2013, and Scandal, which ran from 2012 through 2018. They collectively made her the first female showrunner ever responsible for at least three shows with runs of at least 100 episodes. And she was also the executive producer of the network's How to Get Away with Murder, which ran from 2014 through 2020. Varying combinations of those shows filled a three-hour block of primetime TV on Thursday nights for five years, a truly remarkable achievement. Since moving herself and her company to Netflix in 2017 in a nine-figure deal that made her the highest-paid showrunner in television, she has served as the executive producer of Bridgerton, 2020 through the present, and the creator, head writer, and executive producer of Inventing Anna from 2022, and most recently, Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, which will drop on the service this Thursday. She was the first black woman to create and run her own scripted network TV series, the 2016 recipient of the Producers Guild of America's Norman Lear Award for Achievement in Television, a 2017 inductee into the Television Hall of Fame, making her only the third black woman ever inducted after Oprah Winfrey and Diane Carroll, and one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World three times, each in different decades, in 2007, 2013, and 2021. A woman described by Ted Sarandos as one of the great storytellers in the history of television, by Julie Andrews as one of the most powerful creative forces in film and television today, and by Oprah Winfrey as the most powerful showrunner in television, period, Shonda Rhimes. Over the course of our conversation at the Shondaland offices on the Raleigh Studios lot in Hollywood, the 53-year-old and I discussed her path to the business and a key mentor she met along the way, why she tends to write about fiercely independent career women who love their work, why she doesn't like all of the focus that has been placed upon the trailblazing racial diversity of her shows, what factored into her decision to move from ABC to Netflix, why she decided to tackle a show there centered on the Bridgerton character Queen Charlotte, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Shonda, thank you so much for doing this. Great to have you on the podcast. And um, we always begin here just at the true beginning. Can you share for our listeners, where were you? Born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Ah, I was born and raised in, well, I was born in Chicago. I was raised in the suburbs of Chicago. My mother was a homemaker mm -hmm. and then got her PhD when I was in college and is an educator. Mm -hmm. My father was a chief information officer for universities. Yes. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> now, it seems like, correct me if any of this is wrong, but youngest of six kids. Youngest of six. Um, I know that. That might, for some people, that that results in wanting attention. You know, doing something for attention. Was that you, or were you more of a shy? <laughs> no, I was never somebody who was looking for attention. <laughs> um, but you know, a big family. Yeah. It, I think it actually was a very cocooning experience, and I got to hide the fact that I was super shy ah. um, for a long time. It seems like storytelling, from what I read, prepping from this, you were 
in one way or another doing this from like toddler time, right? I mean, what was, how did that first begin to manifest itself? I mean, I think I was dictating stories into it, like an old fashioned tape recorder and then trying to get my mother to type them up when I was about three or four. Oh my God. What were you, what were your stories about? I have no idea now. <laughs> I have no idea. And my, then I would just dictate, like make sort of radio plays on the tape recorder as well and try oh, to get those to happen. Yeah. yeah. So you go off to Dartmouth and I wonder when you started there, what did you kind of imagine your future would look like? And did anything happen there that sort of redirected that? I don't know that I had any idea um, what I wanted to be when I got to school. I was interested in a lot of things. I knew I was going to be an English literature with creative writing major. Like I knew that was happening. But I was a very – I came in sort of wide-eyed and open and honed in that I really wanted to be a writer. Um, did a lot of theater when I was there, but honed in that I really wanted to be a writer and I wanted to figure out a way to make that a career. So when you graduate 1991, you go off though and start, I guess I read in advertising. How does that then lead to USC film school? It seems like quite a different direction. So I moved to – I didn't know what to do after school. I was literally that person who had angry that I had to leave college. I would have stayed there forever. And I moved to San Francisco and lived in my sister's basement um, and got a job at an advertising agency, which was fine and good. But I knew it wasn't my final stop. I knew it was a job. And then I, I felt a little lost, that lost you feel when you're supposed to know and you don't know. I read an article in the New York Times that said it was harder to get to USC film school than it was to get into Harvard Law School. And I thought, well, it's education. My parents will be fully supportive of that. And there's writing there. So I applied and went. How many kids would be in a class there at that time? I don't know, maybe eight, ten. Oh, yeah. wow. It was in the screenwriting program, which was smaller. And – was it what you hoped it would be? You know what? It was a sort of an, a magical experience in the sense that I had not really even been thinking about the film industry very much at all. Um, I really learned a ton. I made some really good friends. But, you know, film school is for people who already know what they want to do in a lot of ways. Like you have to really know. And I think it provides you with something. But writing is one of those things that either you write, you can write or you can't. Yeah. So film school can't teach you that. Right. But it was a great way to, like, understand the whole industry. Can you explain who Deborah Martin Chase is and how she entered the picture? It seems like it was while you were at USC. I was at film school, and I went to get an internship, which, you know, I feel like everyone was trying to get internships. <laughs> and Deborah Martin Chase worked at Denzel Washington's company. She was running his company at the time. And that felt very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. It felt Monday Lane. It felt all great. So went in for an interview and ended up being her intern. And what was wonderful was that she didn't want to, like, have me just read scripts and write up synopses of the scripts. She wanted me to read the scripts and come and talk to her about them. So I'd read the scripts. We would have a cup of coffee and talk about them. And that's really the beginning of what was a fantastic relationship for me because she was such a great mentor. She looked out for me. She hired me for my first, you know, a second writing job. Um, she's that, pretty great. That was Princess Diaries. Princess Diaries too, too yeah. yeah. But before that happened, I guess it seem, seems like, you know, there are so many people in this town who, you know, everyone's a screenwriter, but there's not everyone actually can sell a script. You did that, seems like fairly early on, whether or not it got made is irrelevant because it allowed you to be a writer, right? Yeah. It didn't feel like fairly early on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I spent, you know, some years just working really hard and 
trying to make it in. And then I got a job at a production company, Apollo Weinstein's production company, and I worked there for a while. Um, you know, knocked around just a bit. And then from there, I put a script on the spec market and it sold. And I didn't think it, nobody thought it was going to sell. I didn't think it was going to sell. I was going to go back to the um, East Coast and go to medical school, pre-med. Really? Yeah. Because you had done, I'd read even something in high school, had you volunteered at a hospital or something? Oh, yeah. I was a candy striper for the whole time I was in high school. Yeah. What's a candy striper? A candy striper is a hospital volunteer. You're basically handing out magazines and saying nice things to people. You know, But just, was that because you'd had some interest really always all along in being in the medical world or what was no. that? No. I, I was a hardcore, I'm going to do a thousand activities and go to college kind of girl. Like, yeah. So it was one of the things that I did and I actually really enjoyed it. So it wasn't like I did it for a couple of months and then gave up. I enjoyed it. So I did it a lot and I did feel really comfortable in a hospital. So had this script, human seeking same, mm -hmm. not sold, you might be in a hospital right now. Yeah, or I'd be a librarian, one of the two. Wow. So the fact that it did sell, it does it give you sort of the financial freedom to then see what, what else you can write as opposed to just t taking whatever job is offered at that point? It was wonderful because it did give me this like great opportunity to figure out what I wanted, you know, how I wanted to do this. I got enough of a financial cushion um, and it kept going into turnaround and then being spot again or whatever. So... That kept me going for quite a while Wow! until Dorothy Dandridge, until I got Dorothy Dandridge. And I just want to mention sort of these probably in that same era. I know Hank Aaron Chasing the Dream, a documentary yeah, yeah. that got gets nominated for an Oscar and Emmy. Mm -hmm. You were involved with that? I was the research director, which Re meant technically I wrote the script that is the documentary. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was an amazing experience because they were great at what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing, and it was a fascinating topic. I didn't know a thing about baseball when I started, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. So there was that. That's 95. Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, 1999, with Halle Berry. Mm -hmm. Crossroads with Britney Spears, 2002. We mentioned Princess Diaries, too. So all of this is film. The idea of getting into the world of television, was that ever... How did that first kind of even become a possibility? You know, I hadn't really been thinking about television. At the time, I mean, I went into television just at the cusp of when television became television. Yeah. But I hadn't really been thinking about it. And then I became a mother. And I can't go anywhere when a baby is strapped <laughs> to your chest. And I started watching television. And I really started to see, like, the, oh, that's where all the great character development's happening. That's where you can sustain, you know, a story and really take your character from one point to another. Um, and also, somebody told me that in television, the writer fires the director, and defeat film, the director <laughs> fires the writer. And so it felt like a place to have some creative control. Right. So the seeds of what became Grey's Anatomy, wasn't this going to be sort of war? No, no, no. So the first thing I wrote and developed for them was a story about four war correspondents, four female war correspondents. Uh, okay. And I loved writing it. We had a great time. But, you know, I didn't know anything about television, and we wrote a pilot that must have cost like $20 million to make. <laughs> So that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But they did say, like, oh, we want to do something else. And so the next pilot, I was very smart. I said, what does Bob Iger want? Right. And someone said he wants a medical show. And I was like, I'm into medical stuff right. and surgery. And so I wrote a medical show. And even in the process of just getting a pilot together for the first time, right, or the second time. Well, they didn't make that first pilot. They didn't yeah. even make Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's new territory at that point for you. 
I guess, finding out what is within and without your uh, – outside of your own kind of uh, – Oversight, I guess you're having having to learn that, and you've talked about just even in the casting with the Christina character as a moment where you kind of first really like I guess stood up for yourself. Can you share what you learned from that? You know, what was important for me was to learn that you are actually the like the leader. You are in charge. Your vision is the vision that should be being executed, and you know. Before that moment where I really said, like, this is the actor I want, I was just happy to be in there for the ride. Like, I couldn't believe that we were making something that I had written and it seemed super fun. But, you know, you get this real sense of, like, if you're not actually, you know, leading the charge, then they're going to follow somebody else. Yeah. And that continued even once you had the pilot in place, right? You've talked about this kind of moment where you're brought into a room, I guess, with Betsy, your producing partner, and sort of questioned by people who... It was when the pilot was... It was during the pilot part, I think. They brought me in a room and they just... It was a lovely group of older men um, who informed me very kindly that nobody was going to watch a show or like a girl who had sex with a man the night before her first day of work, which is what Meredith Grey does. Sure. And um, I just remember thinking like, these guys have no idea what's happening in, in the world at all. Like they're not... They don't know anything about young women. And, but they were very definite. And then Betsy got really body and said, I did that. And everybody got really nervous and they left. Right, right. So maybe as a reflection of how confident or not they were at the beginning, this was raised people, you know, whatever, t- almost 20 years later, may not, people may not remember, mid-season replacement, mm-hmm. initial order, just nine episodes. Yep. We made 13 episodes that season. Made 13, okay. Yeah. It starts out on Sundays after Desperate Housewives, yep. right? Before eventually they... You have, you know, moved to Thursday, which became your night. But I guess, do you remember, was there a moment when you sort of felt confident that you were, this was not going away anytime soon with that show? Yeah. I remember after the fourth episode aired, I was like, we're not going to throw a party after the first or the second or the third. I mean, we're not because we'd be canceled at any minute. But the ratings had been going up and up and up. And so we had a party after the fourth episode and it felt like a little bit of a celebration. And I felt comfortable. You know, I felt like, okay. And the network was giving me presents. And I was like, this is a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> so you were there for – obviously you remained there. But basically it was your – under your total oversight, right, for the first 14 seasons, 14 yes. years. A lot of people have already sort of tried and I've seen in, in conversations with you, they you know, tried to figure out what is the – exact legacy or impact of this show. We know it's big. Not many shows last that long or have done things that it did. I've gotten the sense that you almost bristle when they focus on the on the diversity of the cast because it seems like that shouldn't be as big a deal as it is to a lot of people. Is that a fair read? Um, I just think it's embarrassing for television. Whenever we talk about it, I just feel like the idea that that was new and also the idea that it was revolutionary. That's what really bugs me. People are like, you did this revolutionary, amazing thing. I'm like, I put people of color in a world in which there are people of color. Like mm-hmm. I didn't – I don't – still don't feel like that was a revolutionary thing. It just made me feel embarrassed for everybody else that they didn't <laughs> happen to ever see any people of color or something. I didn't know what they were doing. So I guess in your view, there are other things, and absolutely correctly, that are trailblazing about the show that maybe get overlooked when people start focusing on – that, mm-hmm. what to you 
maybe should they be focusing on instead? The incredible number of women who've gone into the medical profession or other sciences because they watch Grey's Anatomy. I'm, I get letters from those women. I meet those women. Those women were 12 sometimes when they, when they started, and now they're already full doctors. It, it's amazing to me how many people are focusing on science because of it. And I know also I think you've talked about the fact that there had not necessarily been a show where a female lead was um, kind of owning her sexuality, things like that, right? Yeah, but also just a sh show in which the women weren't nice. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they weren't – These were. I wanted to write a show about women I knew and all the women I knew were highly competitive. And so it felt more like real women to me to write women as they are, not to keep them – in a box as somebody's wife or somebody's girlfriend or the, you know, the, the kicky one in the show. I wanted them to be the leads and I wanted them to get to be as unpleasant and interesting as everybody else gets to be. So that was 2005 when it starts, right? Mm -hmm. Two years into that, you have your second show that you're juggling at the same time with, with the spinoff, Private Practice. Mm -hmm. You then seven years into that have Scandal come into the picture. Mm -hmm. Did you have any reservations or concern that taking on – I mean, this is a heavy workload. At one point, I, th I think you had 70 hours of mm -hmm. television a season. Mm -hmm. I mean, not many people have ever taken on – been off that much. Did you always believe you could do that? And, and what did you have to kind of – what were the biggest sacrifices that, that had to be made in order to juggle those? I don't think it ever occurred to me that it was going to be a problem in the sense that I also didn't believe that I could say no. You know, I was young and I was new to the business and there were these opportunities in front of me. I felt crazy not to take them. Um, it really did. And so for me, it was more about, I was like, who knows how long this is going to last? It could be two years. It could be, you know, whatever. I was trying to build a career. Mm -hmm. I mean, really. And yeah, it was hard and it was a lot of time spent, but it was also, it, it somehow it worked. I still don't know how, but somehow it worked. What did you feel was the impact on you personally of having now not only a heavy workload but also a, a profile that where people kind of uh, – you yourself were now very much front and center as well? I mean I never was comfortable with the idea of being front and center. And most importantly, I couldn't wrap my brain around the fact that like I couldn't Picture, I couldn't name any other showrunners that I could recognize, except for Norman Lear, you know, if they walked down the street. I could not name another one. So I did not understand why people knew who I was or knew my name. It felt very strange to me and very disconcerting because I'm not a person who was interested in being in front of any camera. So, it, yeah, it was a lot. I think the work helped, actually. Like throwing myself into the work made it easier to avoid all of that stuff. And then the this year of Yes was more about just – Realizing, I guess, that you had in some ways isolated yourself through all that work? Yeah. I mean, it's also you isolate yourself through the work. The more successful you get, the more isolated you become, all of those things. So there really was a lot to the idea of trying to break out of that. Can we just talk about sort of with, with Scandal for a moment? I mean, Grey's Anatomy, it seems like, had essentially come out of your imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Here's one where you're now at least initially inspired by a, a, a real person to some degree, right, Judy Smith? How did she ever cross your radar in the first place? Well, I mean, I think actually for both shows, for all the shows, it was really about 
it all started with research into a kind of job, right? Gray's, I spent all this time talking to surgical residents about their job and spending time with surgeons and figuring that out. This was another job that was presented to me, basically. You know, Judy Smith came in. It was a job I'd never heard of. She sat down and she started to tell me what she did. It was fascinating to me. And like listening to that, I was like, I could, I can see a hundred episodes of this. Like I know what this is. Yeah. And she's fascinating. How far into the show did you feel that, I mean, she, she definitely has led a very colorful, interesting life, but not necessarily, uh, certainly not, not responsible for deaths and things that well, <laughs> went on. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the show wasn't based on Judy Smith. Yeah. I always say it was based on Judy Smith's job. Right. Because that was really what it was. I mean, we spent a lot of time calling her going, so what would you do in this situation? What would you do in that situation? It was really based on her job and how she did it. And in, in in the case of that show, your key collaborators, I just out of curiosity, I, I had read, I think, Tony Goldwyn, you, did you first cross paths with him on Grey's? He directed episodes of Grey's, yeah. So, and then there was just something where you, um, I mean, obviously, he'd, he'd been an actor for a long time as well, but did it just sort of click in your mind or did it come back? This was years after he'd worked with you on Grey's? That, that yeah, he, I mean, he was, he's a fantastic actor. Yeah. It was years after he'd worked with him. But also... We were having trouble finding someone to play the president, um, to, to straddle that line of what the character was. And Tony was kind of looking for this perfect part. He didn't want to be the lead. He, you know, he wanted to be able to have opportunities to direct. And he's such a good actor. And then he and Carrie had just amazing chemistry. And Carrie had been, so she'd been already lined up to yeah. do this. Did it surprise you to, to learn the stat that everybody then regurgitated every time they wrote about Scandal that it's 37 years since there had been a black lead of a of a network drama? Yeah. I mean, it never occurred to me that that was, once again, it never occurred to me yeah. that that was a thing. And, you know, it felt very big to everybody. Um, and, you know, I think Carrie felt the pressure of carrying that mantle, which was huge. And then we all really felt it because it really meant something. Was it a sense of... I think I'd seen one thing where you talked about, and it might have been Carrie as well, saying, understandably, you know, a sense that if this doesn't work, it could be another yes. 37 years. I said that, yeah. It did. It f did feel like, you know, if I think if Grace had crashed and burned, I think like how many other black female showrunners would there have been? And it really felt like that on Scandal much more because it was a front and center thing. And to have a uh, female lead of color in this spot and then have it not work would have been them saying, see, which is so ridiculous, but them saying, see, you can't make a show with a black lead, which nobody ever says you can't make a show with a white male right, lead right, right. and their show crashes and burns. Now, I guess along similar lines, you know, maybe the one of the most quoted lines from that show, I think, would be where um, Olivia's father tells her, you're going to have to be twice yes. as good to get half as far. Mm -hmm. Proximate, proximate quote, yeah. Do you remember where that came from, where that line was? I think, I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting, the reaction to that, mm -hmm. because that's, uh, for me, it was something like I'd heard all my life. I wondered that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I especially on Twitter, it was very clear, a lot of women, of, a lot of black women, a lot of black men had heard that all their lives. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't new to me. I was surprised at how new it was to everybody else. Speaking of Twitter, I think you were at the vanguard of this wave of, you know, live tweeting shows, which I wondered, I mean, first of all, the the 
initial motivation to get everybody on board doing that from the show. But also, was there any part of you that was thinking maybe it's not a good thing to have people not fully focused on what I've put forward? Or, you know, how do you juggle growing the the word of mouth about the show with not paying attention to your baby? I wasn't even thinking about the fact that they weren't paying attention. I mean, the way... You know, the way people have watched television has changed so much. Yeah. People are always doing something else while watching television. And to live tweet along with the show meant that you weren't really doing something else. You were watching the television and then you were writing about what you were watching. Right. So it was fun for us to sort of let people um, join in and, and get engaged that way. And initially, I think there was a feeling that maybe it was necessary for lack of network promotion for the show initially, at least. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then it really got it going. Um, so with How to Get Away with Murder, I think this is maybe the first one, correct me if I'm wrong, where you are not listed as the creator, mm -hmm. but you're a producer. Yeah. And that, again, would, of course, be the case with Bridgerton season one, not mm -hmm. Queen Charlotte, which we'll all come to. But did, how did you find it? essentially delegating. Like I know people who are really good at what they do don't always – it's not a, it's nothing personal to anyone else, but it's like you don't want to entrust your thing necessarily to somebody else. How did you get to the point where you felt comfortable doing that? Well, first of all, How to Get With Murder wasn't my thing. Like Pete had the idea, you know, sort of fully formed and was very excited about it and we did develop it. But that was really Pete's creative baby. And so for me, it was more about having this great opportunity to make a space for Pete and his story and to sort of shield him under the protection. I always say that sounds crazy, but shield him under the protection of Shondaland, which allowed for just a difference in how notes were given and all of that stuff. And Pete had started with you. Pete had been a baby writer. I don't know if it was private practice or grace. He'd been there. You know, they'd all been there forever. Yeah. And it seems like there's been a number of instances where, I mean, you've worked with people for multiple shows over long periods of time is do you see it as almost like a farm system where that is the trajectory where if you if you can do it in, in the ideal way somebody else grows up the food chain like that it's nice to have them grow up the food chain because you're not having to reteach anything yeah. but also what was good was i don't think i ever thought we'd have this kind of longevity i mean meg marinas was a pa on gray's anatomy season one and she's running the show now you know, that idea. Yeah. I don't think we ever thought we'd have that longevity. And I think I like to work with people I like. And people just stayed. You know, they'd go from one show with me to another show with me. And they just stayed. And so as they grew up, I mean, people who started out as baby writers ended up being, you know, co-EPs by the end. And a lot of them were just fantastic writers. So getting to have that opportunity to give that space was great. And it wasn't about learning to delegate because I'm very good at that. Oh, you okay. I'm oddly good at that. <laughs> I've learned that if you don't let other people do the jobs you've asked them to do, they will be dissatisfied. Sure. Um, one of the things that I think has kind of changed concurrently with and partly because of your shows is the fact that this idea that there are film actors and then there are TV actors, which for most of the history of television was – the case, right? There yes. was sort of a segregation. So between, I guess, Sandra Oh and uh, Carrie Washington and then right through Viola maybe, Davis, maybe yeah. first and foremost Viola Davis who um, – I guess did you find it easier to appeal to people who had made their name in film to come work in TV as time went by? 
It wasn't even my goal. Yeah. I'd never seen Carrie Washington do anything before I hired her for first. Seriously. Yeah, I didn't. I I'd seen Save the Last Dance, but it had been so long ago. I didn't actually connect the two. Um, so for me, it was really just about hiring people who I thought were great and interesting. Viola was different. Viola very much felt like, wouldn't it? It was just a joke. We would say like, wouldn't it be crazy if we got Viola Davis? <laughs> and then getting Viola was amazing, but it wasn't. It's not how we cast our shows. My shows are mostly cast with fresh faces. Yeah. Um, that's what makes it fun to me. Like we get to give people who haven't had an opportunity an opportunity. I don't know if Viola Davis was speaking literally or or if she was talking about it sort of just as something that was important to her. But she suggested that at one point she – a make or break thing for her with doing uh, How to Get Away with Murder was that there be the – removal of the wig. And it wasn't even a make or break thing. We were on the phone talking to her about the part. And she said, I have this vision of doing this and with the wig and the makeup removal. And she said, can we do that? And we said, I looked at Pete and Pete nodded. And I was like, absolutely. And it turned out to be one of the best things. I mean, the way Pete wove that in turned out to be one of the smartest things that's been done. Why do you think it was so important to Viola? I think for Viola, it's it was about the masks that women wear, and I think she really wanted to um, sort of peel back the layers of who this woman of color was, and I think she wanted to be sure that we wanted to peel back those layers too. You know, Olivia Pope is very glamorous and sort of fabulous, and her hair is laid out on her <laughs> pillow when she sleeps because that's the kind of story that was. Right. Viola's character was very much a much raw, raw, realer version of a woman. She's not a fantasy. So— 15 years at ABC, you you build up all these um, shows and the whole having your own evening essentially and all of all of that. Uh, and then we get to this moment where I wondered, was it when you – what you've started, what you've called Shondaland 2.0 where mm-hmm. after making the move over here to Netflix, was that driven by – I guess there are a number of things I want to. I want. I'm curious about network television. You guys were doing what? 22 episodes for most of these shows. Yeah, we were doing 70. Yeah, 70. It was the 70 episodes a season thing. It was right. 24 Grays, 22 Scandal for most of the part, and then 15 of Violas and the Catch. It was so all. There's them. the volume. There's the constraints of what you can show and say. Whereas with streaming, I, I, back before you were in 2.0 uh, land, you were saying. Just speculating in one article, like it seems like what doing 13 or 10 episodes allows you to – is the time to sit back and look at it and go, is this right? The way a painter stares at a painting while they're doing it, you don't have that time in network television, close quote. So I guess were those the kinds of considerations that were making a move appealing or were there other things that would be equally important? You know what was most important for me was this idea that – you know, I had – the entire time I was at ABC working on those shows, I was always learning. I was learning something new. I was learning how to do one show, two shows, three shows. I was learning how to deal with the outsized fame of the cast, all those things. Every show was a learning experience. And Betsy Beers and I started to have this feeling where, like, something would happen. Like, there would be, like, you know, a crisis. And that crisis would have taken us, like, three weeks to fix, you know, in the first season of Grey's Anatomy. And we could fix it in, like, 15 minutes. We knew what to do. We knew what to say. It was over. And I was like, we're not, like— I know this job. I know this job like the back of my hand. There's nothing new here. I enjoy it. I love it. But there's nothing new here. And there was something really exciting about learning a whole new way of doing things. And 
I was, I have to say, I was truly exhausted. And so the idea of doing less episodes was very appealing to me. The other aspect of this, which I guess, you know, you, I think you, to some degree, touched upon with my colleague Lacey Rose at THR was that, you know, just kind of you, you were responsible for so much of the success at ABC. Did you feel that you were adequately appreciated? You know, I, I definitely felt like I was uh, up to a point. I definitely felt like I was adequately compensated. ABC, during those days, they weren't the best at, like, making people feel appreciated. I remember one year at Empire, I remember Fox gave them all Rolexes, like, the first season. And I remember sort of looking, Betsy and I looking at each other and being like, for 10 years of grace, we got a $100 bottle of wine apiece. No. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't that I thought that they were particularly selfish. It wasn't a priority for them. Like, they weren't in the business of that at all. It just it just didn't sort of factor into how they ran things. And that was fine. And so I wasn't I didn't really ask for much. I literally asked I wanted two Disney passes and that was really all I wanted. And they wouldn't give me the second Disney pass. And to me that just felt like not not that they were being mean or whatever. They just didn't care enough. Like it was a, such a simple thing. It was like, what is it? Hundred and something dollars? And it's like it's no skin off their back. Right. That's crazy. And more importantly, it wasn't that, you know, I was asking for tons of stuff. I literally, that's all I really wanted for my kids. And the fact that they weren't interested in giving it and suggested to me that I should already feel like I had enough was, it was a moment for me. It really was. I bet. Um, and it took, it was a moment for me to step back and evaluate, like, it's not the principle of the ticket. You know, it's not like I wanted the money for the ticket. I just wanted to know that we were partners in something and it didn't even feel like that anymore. And meanwhile, as you were looking at the, the streaming services kind of at that point, I guess when you left, it was on, like Disney Plus had only just a week before I think been announced. So there at that point was Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, mm -hmm. maybe something else. But like they did seem to be valuing creative people on a different – in a different way, right? And mm -hmm. just in terms of front and center uh, – deals and all of that, just was there something specifically about Netflix that made you draw, that attracted you to them more than somewhere else, let's say? I was only attracted to Netflix. I was really interested in their model. I spent a lot of time doing research about them and talking to people who'd like, talking to Genji, talking to people who worked there um, and wondering if there was a larger way to look at this, if there was a larger model to be had. And there was, obviously, but what I thought was great was is the, sh the quality of the shows was beautiful. It wasn't like they were making things fast and loose and throwing them out there. The quality of the shows was so good. And like The Crown had a budget of like $12 million an, ep an episode or something. I don't really know what it was, yeah, it but was it crazy. seemed yeah. insane to me. Yeah. And then I got to know Ted. Um, and he started walking episodes over to my house. <laughs> um, and, and it really went from there. Episodes of... Which was a show oh. that you were into? Was yeah, it? it was a show that I was into. I can't remember what the show. <laughs> I, I'm jet lagged, so yeah, my no, memory no is not problem, the best no right problem. now. Now, other than Ted, when you made the move, did you know anybody at Netflix? No. I guess it was after you that Channing Dungey came over, or when was that? Yeah, that was later. Yeah, I didn't know anybody at Netflix. It was, and mostly, I, I was, at that point, I was really only talking to Ted. Right. I didn't really know anybody else, and it was, it was working for me because Ted did the one thing that I wanted, which was, I was like, I just want to be able to make shows and not feel like you know I'm beholden in a terrible way, and he was like, fine. 
had you gotten a lot of notes over the years from ABC? Um, I hate answering this question because it always makes people who work in development there feel mad. No. I mean, I, I don't think I've gotten a note, and that's still a rule on Grace. I don't think we've gotten a note on Grace in season three. Yeah, and from there, there yeah, there were no notes. Was that because they, they knew n- not to go there? No, because my thing was simply, it wasn't that I was so hard or whatever. I just, at a certain point, we're telling a story. I know what the story is. Um, I didn't, like, the notes were no longer about the show. They felt more like they were about the fears of the show not staying popular, and that's not helpful. Like, you can't you can't do fear-based noting. And so at Netflix, does it, are there, how does, does it work differently? I mean, basically, you, there's not the whole, obviously, seems like, correct me, but I, I, I don't think there's anything like a pilot process. No. They're either in or out, yeah. especially with, with their top creative people, right? Yes, but, you know, for me, creatively, I think, and this is important, we've talked about it. Like, could there be a pilot process? Because how great is it to make the pilot stare at it and then go, oh, we need to recast this or we need to rethink that? I think that's a pretty great thing. I mean, knowing that you're going to continue forward with the episodes. You know, for me, I would love that. But, yeah, there's not really a pilot process. And so when you made the move to Netflix, I guess basically kind of overlapping with the pandemic breaking out, right? It was sort of – uh, or that happened. That was later. Later, that was later, yeah. So, it seems like you really gave a lot of thought what what your about what your first projects there should be. We did a little documentary yes. about the Debbie Allen Dance Academy, and then and that was like a just a little passion project we had going. Um, and the first thing that came out was Bridgerton. Okay. Yeah. Now that just because of course it's going to kind of connect back when we talk about Queen Charlotte, that was. Um, something where you said, let's go and get the rights to these romance novels that had inspired it. What made you believe? Because it seems like for whatever reason, people hadn't really bet heavily on romance novels and television as a source material. Well, let's be clear. People don't bet, hadn't bet very heavily on women as source material, period, in television until Grey's, right? Right. So then now I'd found these books, which I was like, they're juicy, they're fully formed. I understand what's happening. I feel like I can see myself in there. It, it was exciting. The male characters were also interesting. I thought, this is fun. And we were also at this time, we were making such grim television. Everything was so grim. And I'm sort of hip to be grim. And I wanted to enjoy myself. And so we did it. And I, I thought it was going to be great. I know, I mean, even Betsy thought I was crazy when I brought it up. But then she read them and she was all on board too. And when you brought this idea to Netflix, what was there? Did they believe in immediately? You know what? They, I have to say what has been wonderful is, is they were like, you're excited about this? I was like, yeah. They're like, great. That was sort of – that's how things work. That's that's yeah. uh, that's the dream scenario, I guess. So with that one, for just to start with, with Bridgerton, this first season, which ends up becoming when it went out the biggest show, Netflix, original show from Netflix uh, to that point – you were convinced that there would be a sizable audience for this? I wasn't worried about the audience. No? One of the reasons why I wanted to go to Netflix as well was it was – I had this imagined idea that when you when I got to streaming, I wasn't going to have to worry about ratings or numbers. Now, of course, we know that's not true. Everybody's bottom line is numbers. But I was like, I don't want to – like, that's not a thing I want to live and die by. I don't care about that enough. And so for me, it wasn't even about that. So how for you do you measure success? I mean – now, obviously, yes. But 
at the time, for me, I just wanted to make something that we were really proud of. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to Netflix and put out a dud. Like, that was very important to me. Like, what we're putting out has to feel both like Shondaland, but also like Shondaland that's not made for ABC. I needed it to feel original. So you had been the one that found the novels, bought the rights, said this is going to work. What goes into a decision about, you know, for instance, with Inventing Anna, you're every capacity that can be, mm-hmm. whereas with Bridgerton, you're a producer as opposed to, like, basically, how do you make those decisions? Um, that was simple. In a weird way, like, I, we got the Bridgerton books. I was exhausted. I mean, I'll just tell you, like, frankly, what happened was I was exhausted mm-hmm. from, I just wrapped up Scandal, Grays are still going, you know, all these things were happening, and I was fried beyond belief. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have all these great writers, let me see um, if one of them, if I, there's somebody I can guide through this process. And it's, you know, it always works the same. You know, Pete's probably one of the only writers whose scripts were never going through my computer, but everybody else's do. Um, and I didn't need the credit. I mean, I was like, how much more credit does a person need? <laughs> so it was great for me. It was a great experience. And I got to, you know, do all the editing. And it was the first time I got to really spend the time producing. You know, with How Do We With Murder, so much of that was Betsy because I was busy making all these other shows. Mm-hmm. This was a real chance to sort of roll up our sleeves and produce this the way we wanted to. So if, if somebody's listening who is confused about what each of these different jobs entails, when you're producing versus when you're like with Queen Charlotte now doing all all mm-hmm. the creating, writing, producing, what what like – can you break it down a little bit for us what that means? For me, other than, well, the joy of somebody else was writing a script, sending it to me, I was writing all the notes and saying what should happen and sending it back. <laughs> that that was really the Queen, um, the Bridgerton process. But for somebody like, for instance, Pete Nowak, you know, you're just literally, I'm just poking my head in every once in a while going, do you need anything? Because he, <laughs> know, he, you know, he was sort of a born showrunner. And I think that it's great when you're starting out to have somebody who can help you get through that process. That was more what it was for me. I had the opportunity to really help a writer get through that process and understand what it meant. And we had the opportunity to do all the casting and the clothes and, you know, just really enjoy it. So I guess I, I, maybe I know the answer to this because you've just said you were, when Bridgerton was coming together, you were burned out. But with Queen Charlotte, mm-hmm. why for that one, part essentially part two of this Bridgerton universe, you then came on and did everything? Because I loved that story. I mean, I I loved the Bridgerton world that we created, and there was something about Golda playing that role of Queen Charlotte that just stuck with me all the time. Like I was like, she's the Beyonce of the Regency world. She's fantastic. <laughs> and that was exciting to me. And then Ted called and asked me to write Queen Charlotte, and I was like, absolutely sure. There was no way that, you know, Chris could write Queen Charlotte because he's he's had the Bridgerton engine to keep going, by the way. But I also felt a real special connection to that character and wanted to really explore um, the issues that come up in Queen Charlotte in a way that felt um, authentic. So when you say he's got the engine still keep going, just so people, if they're mapping out in their heads the Bridgerton universe, first season is season one, let's say. Mm-hmm. This Is this Queen Charlotte in your mind – essentially a limited series spinoff? I don't consider this – I consider it a Bridgerton story. I don't consider it part of the Bridgerton series. Okay. Um, because, you know, the Bridgerton series is very definitely about each one of the Bridgerton children. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was – it's. I think it's supposed to land 
if you needed to have a timeline somewhere between season two and season three of Bridgerton. But I don't – I mean, I haven't decided. I haven't decided if it's a limited series. I haven't decided if it's going to be a, like a series of limited series. Mm-hmm. I don't know yet. So all of the prior times where people have tried to um, kind of read meaning into or, or ascribe significance to the role of race in shows that you've done, you have – like we were saying earlier, you've said this is kind of – feels – over analyzing it or or putting more emphasis than than you would. In this case, with the the world of Bridgerton, it feels like it's more just inherently integral the the conversation about race. Was that something that you looked forward to dealing with more directly, or just the way? It, I don't think I've ever shied away from conversations about race with my characters in any of the shows um, at all. This this particular show. And this is what I think is really interesting. This particular show, race had an actual meaning to what was happening in the story mm-hmm. versus, you know, a show like Scandal where I, people are always like, why didn't you talk about it in season one? I was like, because they've known each other for years. And if they're finally having this conversation now, that means they never had it before. You know, it felt like it actually was really relevant to the story and needed to be discussed in a way. And it was fun to do it. With Queen Charlotte, and I don't know if the proper terminology would be sort of prequel in a sense because we're going back in time and seeing and then back forward to but I guess just casting wise it seems like you might have had some fun with finding all these great actors to play people at different stages and um it's definitely fun to to watch and see it unfold how people became who they are and all of that how much with a show like this do you like to be in are you are you involved with every major with every casting decision or how does that work? I'm involved with every casting decision yeah. on every show, yeah. yes. And is that a part of the process that you enjoy or you just have to get through? No, I love finding the actor. I think yeah. that's a really fun thing to get to do. When you put the right person in the right part, it always it always feels like a magic like thing clicks for me. It's important to find those right people. What do you think people who – have not yet had the opportunity to see Queen Charlotte. It's going to come out a few days after this episode posts. What should they know going into it about just um, is there anything you would want to tease as far as what it covered? Like I don't want to spoil anything that you don't want mm-hmm. spoiled. Yeah. Um, I mean it's really about a woman or women coming into their own power. I mean that's really what it's about at its heart. It's also about the fact that I'm very interested in not telling a sort of romantic story of a marriage where everything's perfect. It's really about the complexities of what marriage means and how to how you cope with that. It's it's very romantic. It's very funny in places. Um, I don't know. I mean, I hope people enjoy it. I, I feel like I, sort of a it's nice that they all get to have it all at once and they can binge it as they see fit. Well, that was exactly where I wanted to go next because I guess maybe. The first time you experience this in a in a major way where you have a, a huge chunk of your work drop at once with mm-hmm. Netflix was Christmas Day 2020 yes. with Bridgerton number one, first season where basically it's like the whole world except North Korea essentially gets yes. it at once the whole season. Um, you'd not – obviously when network television had that, what do you – what was that like? And the conversation that ensues as a result, how, again, you have your your background in, with social media with Scandal and all that, but just the, to have something that you've worked on 
for that long, go out at once. What's that like? I thought it was great. I mean, it was it was lovely to have it all out there. I knew how I was growing, you know, growing to watch television. I'm a person who now will save up all the episodes of Yellow Jacket so that I can binge them as opposed to just watching one at a time. I like that binge thing. So I was excited that we were going to get to do that. That was fun for me. And having been through it once before with Queen Charlotte, is there – do you already know how you want to spend that day when when everybody else is seeing what you've done? Oh, no. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> like I, and to me, it's already done yeah. and then it's going to be out. But I hadn't really thought about reaction. Yeah. In the Emmys universe of mm-hmm. which uh, your shows have often been a part of, is it logical to keep network TV competing against cable, competing against streaming, or are they such apples and oranges? You've been on both sides of this. It just feels like, is it a fair fight to put them in the same races? I think everything's evolving. And I yeah. think as long as shows like Abbott Elementary compete, then it should be fine. I, I think that, you know, where television is going as a whole is evolving. And that evolution has to just happen. It doesn't mean you suddenly make separate categories. It means that you expand, you know, the opportunities for those categories to be viewed. McDreamy, JJ, my person, we could keep going. There's a lot of words and terms that are in the lexicon, thanks to you. Are Is there one that you get the biggest kick out of hearing just pop up in the, in the world? Oh, God. <laughs> no, it's strange. It, it, I do think it, it's amusing to me when people say it's handled because I hear that a lot. <laughs> right. um, that amuses me still. The other words have been there so long. It's been so long. I, I can't believe we're at this place, place but <laughs> they've been there now for such a long time. Speaking of long time, Grey's Anatomy, as we said, I think coming up it, on – Season 20. Season 20, amazing. Not – I don't know the exact figure, but I'm sure it's very few shows have lasted that long. Um, In your view, could it go on forever or is there something that to you would be the signal that it's time to wrap it up? The reality of it is, is 10 years ago, I would have had an answer. You know, um, 12 years ago, I might have had an answer. At this point, it feels like, and it's very, the show does not, a show reaches a certain point where it does not belong to me. Like it's not my show. It belongs to a lot more people. It does a lot more stuff than I ever expected it to do. And as long as people are invested, like I'm amazed at how they managed to reinvest in our new characters over time. As long as people are invested and engaged and and we're still telling medical stories that matter, then I'm who am I to say? But nobody else is going to make the decision that, all right, we're going to wrap it up now. That's going to be a – you're going to be yeah. signing off on that. Yeah. Other than the sort of default answers of family and, you know, children and all of that, what is what is your greatest pleasure in life? Hmm. I'm going to be really shallow and say sleep. That's a, that's a fair answer. It's very important to me. <laughs> and I heard one thing. I don't know that this would be the greatest pleasure, but I heard uh, like a lot of people, you, you have a, you like a nice glass of wine at the end of the day. I don't anymore. Not anymore? No. I feel like I've, I stopped drinking wine maybe like – in a, re- in a regular way, maybe like 10 years ago. Okay. Um, partially, you know, kids, partially just it makes you sleepy but doesn't make you sleepy. Sure. You know, like, yeah. So not anymore. What, you know, we've talked about all the professional things uh, so far. And again, I, I want to exclude because I'm sure personal, you know, children and all of that are things that 
everyone's very proud of, and and that's totally understandable. <laughs> You're like, don't mention but, your kids. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What professionally are you proudest of? Oh, wow. I mean, I'm very proud of the work that we've been doing. But I, I mean, I'll be honest and say I'm very proud of the move from Disney to Netflix and how that was engineered and how it happened. Um, as a career moment, as a business moment for me, that was a, that was a big thing. What do you hear the most from sort of the now I was going to say generation, but it might even be generations of of you know creative people, showrunners, writers, producers who have who have come up in the wake of the stuff that you've been doing for all these years? What's the feedback from them that has meant the most to you? I think it's the talk about paving the way. I really do. I think that that's been sort of magical to me because I wasn't trying to pave anybody's way at the beginning. I was just trying to make a way for myself. And to discover that it's it's helped so many other people or they feel like it's helped them is is amazing. And don't say generations. I'm not that old. <laughs> not that old. What shows other than Shondaland shows do you actually really enjoy and watch on a regular basis? I watch Abbott Elementary. I watch American Auto. Those are the two shows I think are just the funniest shows right now. I watch Succession and Yellow Jackets and um, a couple of other shows, but I'm saving those so you can't tell me anything no, about the season. No, don't worry. I... Those are those are gathering. Yep. Um, I you know I think that there's really good shows out there. I'm discovering new shows. I've been making a show for so long right now that I there have been. There's been a period in which I haven't seen anything new, so I'm sort of behind. You're talking about a specific show or just all the no, shows? No, I'm just saying, you're... yeah, like yeah. I haven't had a chance to – and this is kind of one of my greatest pleasures yeah. is you curl up in bed and you browse to see what shows are out there and then I make a little list of what I'm going to watch. Right. I haven't had a chance to do that recently. So it's been a while since I've gotten to really do that because I'm – you know, I was doing Queen Charlotte and now I'm editing Bridgerton. So it makes it harder to jump into something else, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> in your – mind, are there specific things that you haven't yet accomplished that you would be upset with at yourself if you don't at some point accomplish? In the film industry? Television In industry? show business, yeah. No. I said this to somebody yeah. the other day, and I was kind of shocked to hear myself say it out loud, but if I retired tomorrow, I'd be perfectly content. Is there a day that you can envision where you actually would retire or are you going to be like Norman Lear where you're doing it past 100? Yeah, I'm not going to be doing anything <laughs> past 100. But, you know, I I went through this phase where I told everybody at the office that I was retiring and they all laughed at me um, because they knew I wasn't retiring. Right. And then I went and promptly wrote Queen Charlotte. I feel like it's um, – for me, it's just about wanting to have stories to tell. As long as I have stories to tell, I'm going to keep doing this. And finally, just, you know, this is a this is a – Real big picture one, but I guess just many years from now when we're all gone, what is it? You know, somebody Wikipedia's Shonda Rhimes or or maybe there will be some newer, more reliable version than Wikipedia or whatever it is. But what is it that you hope they say about you? That is a legacy question and I do not you answer You don't do legacy. those. No, I'm not. It's not up to me to judge what somebody else is saying. Fair you know, enough. Maybe they'll be saying I'm a hack back by then. You don't know. I don't want to. I'm not in that. You're too in it right now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really thank you so much. It. This was nice. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. 
and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.